You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. ...to the book of Psalms, and I usually don't need to say that's the same as the book of Psalms, but I, I probably should today. Psalm 126. Psalm 126, if you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 623. Psalm 126 is the seventh of the songs of ascent, which begin at 120, and as you'll see, go through to 100. And 34. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. You'll notice if you're using the New International Version that there is an alternative translation when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And presumably the reason why the New International Version translators translated the words this way uh, was because they thought that this psalm particularly referred to the Babylonian exile and the return of God's people. So, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Incidentally, the language there is really the same as the language in verse 1. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now, those of us who belong to St. Peter's are particularly sorry for those of you who are visitors that our minister, David Robertson, uh, is not here. He and Annabelle, as you've heard in our prayer, are on vacation and he has been preaching in the mornings on Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I serve as his honorary fourth or perhaps fifth assistant and uh, have been preaching in the evenings on the songs of Ascent, and uh, my master on earth enjoined me simply to continue that series, and this is the reason why we've arrived this morning at Psalm 100. And 26. Although it's part of a series of messages and also part, as I've indicated, of a series of psalms, each of these psalms uh, on their own does stand on its own as a kind of isolated message for us. They were brought together, these 15 psalms written by different people, uh, written in the light of different 
occasions and personal experiences, but brought together as a special little hymn book or psalm book for pilgrims going from their towns and villages, as they were enjoined to do in Scripture, several times a year, and gathering together for what we might call big church in Jerusalem. Uh, Early on, of course, in the history of God's people, uh, we know so little about how they worshipped. Did they worship only in homes before, for example, there were synagogues, even if they worshipped in synagogues. If you've been to Israel and seen the ruins of some synagogues, you know that they gathered in relatively small numbers in rural populations. And so, for them, uh, going to Jerusalem was as it is for some people who in the summer months will go to the Lake District to the Keswick Convention or to some other grand occasion where they gather together and they anticipate that as they place their lives under the means of grace, worship and prayer and fellowship and the teaching and sharing of God's Word, their experiences would intensify they would have fresh aspirations to know and love God. And at the same time, God would work intensively and deeply in their lives and perhaps bring to the surface latent aspirations or convict them of sin as uh, they became conscious of the the joy of God's presence, the power of God's presence, as so often they heard God's Word sung in the liturgies and by the choirs, and as it was spoken among God's people, uh, they would become conscious particularly that they needed God's grace in fresh ways, that they thought they were motoring along Uh, They had lived, as the opening of this series of Sam says, that they'd lived in a world where people were indifferent to spiritual things and where apparently the church was in a low spiritual condition. And they'd begun to think that was normal. Uh, One of the most striking things about being in a living church is that when people who have simply being church members somewhere else, faithful to the end somewhere else, uh, come into that living fellowship, one of the things they will often say is, I've forgotten what I was missing. I had come to think that was normal. And that's the place where uh, the pilgrims have been brought by the time they have reached the experience of Psalm 126. It reflects, as you'll see in the first three verses, on what God did in the past and the blessings that God brought to His people in the past. And then it turns to the present and is conscious that things are not what they used to be. Nor, and this is the big point, nor are things what they ought to be, and there grows within the heart of 
the psalmist, and it, you can sense that now we're a little way into the experience of the pilgrimage, a longing that God would do it again. And this is why the psalm begins, and then as it turns the corner to verse 4, it uses the same language, perhaps related to the Babylonian captivity, but certainly the language in itself doesn't focus so much on the Babylonian captivity as on the sense that at some point in the past, whether individually or as a family or corporately as the church, God restored the people. And now the psalmist is praying, O Lord, restore us again, or even restore me again. So you see, there's a very clear hinge here. He begins with recollection of the past. Perhaps this psalm would, in the minds of many people, cause them to reflect on the Babylonian captivity, the days that Psalm 137 later reflects on when we were by the waters of Babylon, and our captors said to us, come on now, give us one of your old Zion songs. And they had hung their harps on the willows, and uh, they had become so spiritually lethargic that uh, they were like the, the figure in Proverbs who is hungry but reaches out his hand into the bowl and is so sluggardly he can't bring the food back to his mouth. And they say, we can't reach up to our guitars that we hung on the trees and sing you one of the Lord's songs. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? It was a pathetic statement, really, because we're always living in a strange land, and we're called by the Lord to sing His song in a strange land. It was an indication, in a way, of how far down they had fallen. But perhaps it simply refers to some experiences in the past when they were conscious that God had come and uh, He had done something special in their lives. And as He puts it so poetically, we were like men who dreamed. And God visits you in a special way, and you, you kind of wake up, and you think, I can hardly believe He has been so good to me, so kind to me. For some of us, that was a perfect description of our conversion to Christ. When we discovered the graciousness of the Lord, how could we take it in? We, we woke up in the morning and another morning, and, and we could hardly believe, we, I have become a Christian believer. It's amazing. Like men who dreamed, our mouths filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Uh, you see the, the sadness, the grief, the, the pain of the conviction of sin that would bring you back to the Lord had given way to, to laughter, to, to joy. Uh, you know what you laugh for various reasons, don't you? 
Do you know, one of the things that makes you laugh is that something is done or something is said that is altogether contrary to expectation. That's why it's so bad to miss the punchline of a joke and why some of us who are not good joke tellers have good jokes and tell them so badly because we we mess up the punchline, which is supposed to be like a, a sudden blow to the solar plexus because we didn't expect that that would be the result. But when we get the joke, our mouths are filled with laughter. And if one can put it this way, uh, in conversion, the joke is on us, isn't it? We who were hostile to God, We who despised God, despised His people, some of us, bad-mouthed them. And now, by God's grace, the joke has been on us, and we can hardly believe that we who despised Him have been loved by Him. And our mouths are filled with laughter. And what do we begin to do? We begin to sing. I was thinking when we were singing the psalm this morning, isn't this amazing? Some of us wouldn't even sing in the shower. Some of us, when we first came to church, maybe brought up in church, would stand stubbornly and refuse to sing. How do I know? Because I've stood in a hundred pulpits. And though I don't usually look at the congregation when I'm singing, sometimes I glance up to see what's going on in this place. Because one of the signs that you have been released from self-obsession is that you want to sing the Lord's praises. And it was all part and parcel of this experience. How can we sing the Lord's song? And now, by God's grace, our tongues are filled with songs of joy. And whatever this was, whether it was the way in which God, through a pagan king, first of all brought back the captives from Babylon, or whether, as I think the psalm is really intended to apply to situations like that, but also to individual and personal and church situations, whatever it was that had happened in the past, it was significant. And we know that because other people noticed. Other people noticed something has happened. And so, he tells us uh, halfway through verse 2, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And interestingly, you'll notice just from the way the word Lord is capitalized that this is, this is the Lord, God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And even pagans were saying. Isn't it interesting in this psalm? It was said among the nations that the Lord has done great things for them. And then the psalmist, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Most of the psalms begin with the praises of God's people and then invite the nations to join in. But here God has done something wonderful. It's almost as though the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things. Why don't you, His people, join in? 
And so the psalmist says, it's true. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now, uh, notice what the people among the nations are saying. They're saying, this is a work of God. And as believers, the psalmist responds in joy because this is for the Lord's glory. And yet, amazingly, this has been for our blessing. Remember when we were uh, earlier on in 2 Corinthians, that marvelous statement Paul makes about his preaching of the gospel and the conversion of individuals. And he says, this causes thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Isn't that an interesting combination of statements? When God does this kind of thing, it produces in us a profound thankfulness and simultaneously brings honor to His name and praises His glory. And you know, you see this again and again in the Scriptures, and it's something that your unbelieving friends cannot understand. They simply cannot understand that something that would be for the glory of God would also be for your blessing. And again and again, the Scriptures join these two things together, that what God does among His people for His own glory, simultaneously He does it in order that we may be blessed and filled with thanksgiving. If these words don't remind you of Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they they might remind you of the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What is our chief end? That's what this is about. It's about how God restored to them their chief end, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Now, biblically instructed, spiritually minded, living Christians enjoy that combination. Backslidden Christians characteristically don't, and unbelievers never do. Just can't get the connection between glorifying Him. Surely, if God is glorified, then that minimizes anything that would bring me pleasure and joy. And the Scriptures are saying to us from beginning to end, the very reverse is true. He created us for His glory in order that we might have joy. And He converts us for His glory in order that we might have joy. And He brings us home to His glory in order that we might have joy. And the psalmist is looking back if this was a great historical event, he's been, as it were, he's been asking the older ones to tell the story again. Just like a child might want the same Bible story told over and over again. Tell me the story of how God restored the Babylonian captivity, because I want to hear how He brought joy and refreshment to His people. Or perhaps it is simply an individual experience, an experience among 
the community and the visit to the past does something to him in the present. And I think that's probably the whole point, that visiting the blessings of the past raises for me the question, am I living in those blessings in the present? We're all conscious, I think, aren't we, of that biblical question, have we lost our first love? And most of us are conscious also of the telltale signs of losing that first love, that our, our mouths are no longer filled with joy. They tend to be filled with complaint. There is a, a loss of thankfulness. There is a clouding of the glory of God. And you see, it's when He, when he visits the past and the the blessings and the marks of those blessings in his life that, that he becomes conscious. I'm not where I used to be. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord losing our first love and having the telltale signs, the loss of the praise of God, the loss of rejoicing in the glory of God, the loss of thankfulness, the increase of unthankfulness and indifference, the loss of poise, the loss of the sense of the Lord being great and me being blessed. And so, that brings about a transition Actually, it's an indication to us. It's a, it's a very important thing to visit your past, isn't it? And to remember the blessings of God in the past and to ask the question, am I, am I living in those blessings still or have I lost my first love? And it's intended to lead, and this is the reason the psalmist is writing this down for us, It's intended to lead us from the past to the present. Visits to the past are ineffective unless they create in us longings in the present. And so the psalm that begins by recollection of the past moves to intercession for the present in words similar to the words in which he recollected the past. The Lord brought back the captains, the captives to Zion. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Actually, it's the very same language. Remember our series on Job? Uh, seems a long time ago. Job 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. That's exactly the same language. It's about God reversing a sense of barrenness and bringing about a sense of fullness. And now he's praying, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore us to where we were, O Lord. Do it again now. And then he uses this marvelous illustration, like streams in the Negev. Now, if that's mumbo-jumbo to you, Uh, the Negev is the south of the land. The picture in his mind is of these wadis in the south of the land being dried up 
And then, as it were, simply out of the blue come those floods of rain, and almost instantaneously. We don't get rain like this in Scotland. We get a lot of rain, but we don't get rain like this. You live in certain parts of the United States of America, you get rain like this, where those big French drains that would swallow your dog are suddenly filled with water, these flash floods, and this sudden reversal of where the land has been barren and dry. The land is now made fertile by the rain that falls from heaven. And the reason that he uses this picture is because he knows God can do this instantaneously. God can immediately come, sovereignly come, graciously come, and begin the reversal and restore his spiritual fortunes to what he once experienced, like, you know, turning your computer back to some previous time that won't wipe out what has happened in between, but in a sense will give you a new start. That's how God works. The past is the past. Actions of consequences. Here the great assurances that God is able to restore me to the blessedness that I knew when first I trusted Him or when in the past I walked in the midst of His blessing. Actually, God had promised this to His covenant people. You know, I remember uh, Christians used to use a language of being, of being, as it were, uh, inescapably captured by God's second best so that you could never get back to the refreshment. That's not what the Scripture teaches, is it? The Scripture teaches that God is a God who is pleased to restore His people. He desires the blessing of His people. Indeed, one of the terrible fruits of spiritual barrenness is that you stop believing that, and you believe the lie of Satan. He doesn't want me any longer to know or enjoy His presence and His blessing. But the psalmist is leaning on the promises that God had made in His covenant with His people, that He would come to them, that He would restore those who longed to be restored to the Lord, and uh, He had all the power to do it, and He was willing to do it. That would be great, wouldn't it? That would solve all your problems. It would be marvelous to know such a personal revival from God that uh, all the problems would vanish and all the pain would disappear, Uh, but the psalmist says it's actually not like that at all. When God comes, yes, there is pain. When God moves, yes, there are tears. And so, alongside this this natural picture of God coming and pouring down the rains from heaven that fill the wadis and render the land fruitful, he also wants to say that when God comes like that, 
God comes in such a way that it's those who sow in tears who reap with songs of joy. It's those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, who will return with songs of joy. You can think about this in in different ways, can't you? You can think about it in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. When we've been going through these psalms, we've often asked the question, how would Jesus have sung this psalm? What would he have made of this psalm? Well, he is the one who went forth in tears, wasn't he? Tears over the death of Lazarus and what Satan had done in bringing death into the world, and tears over Jerusalem, tearing his guts out as he viewed the city in which the psalmist envisages his friends standing, that they would not have him. Tears in Gethsemane, as Hebrews says, with strong crying and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. When blessing comes, great blessing characteristically involves real tears. It was true of Simon Peter, wasn't it? If Christ cried in order to bring the blessing of salvation, Peter cried in order to experience the blessing of restoration. You ever cried over your sin? Has the rain ever fallen so much and flooded your soul that those hard layers have become softened, and as they've become softened, uh, it's brought forth tears because you have been so unfaithful to the Lord. He should be utterly ashamed of you, utterly ashamed of you, because you have lived shamefully And then it dawns on you that indeed you have lived shamefully. But no matter how far you thought you had progressed, you are never anything but a sinner saved by His grace, and all the waters burst forth. And you come back to Him weeping, and it fructifies your soul, it quickens and enlivens your soul. And if that's true of Christ accomplishing our salvation and bringing about our personal restoration, it's also true of the ongoing transformation, isn't it? Remember how Paul, you would think he almost picked up these verses when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and into Galatians 6. And he tells us, you reap what you sow but here you reap tears and you sow transformation. And so he says, if you, if you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. If you sow to the flesh, of the flesh you will reap corruption, but if you sow to the Spirit, of the Spirit you will, you will reap eternal life. But it's costly. It costs your sin of putting it away and walking in the Spirit and sowing to the Spirit rather than sowing to the flesh. And every single hour of our lives, we're either sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. 
and we will indeed reap either the blessings of the fruit of the Spirit or the corruption and failure of our sinful lives. But there is this great promise that the one who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So here's a question. Are you, are you spiritually a dried up riverbed and no resources in yourself? And then you think, as our fathers sometimes thought when they, when they heard of awakenings in other parts of the country, and they began to pray, Lord, do hear what you are doing there or when you see another Christian believer, or when you sit under the ministry of God's Word, this awakening that takes place in your heart. Oh, Lord, I was was there once. I enjoyed you once. And now, God, help me. I've become so involved in doing things for you. I've lost sight of the you for whom I'm I'm doing things. You could have crossed the Atlantic and actually be in this situation, couldn't you? Indeed, the likelihood is that you've crossed the Atlantic and you are in this situation, just as we have crossed the city of Dundee and we we find that this is true. That's why we need this every Lord's Day, isn't it? To remember what He has done. That's why we sing these songs and these psalms. And we know that we have our lives cluttered and, and we've gathered to ourselves the hardness of the world in which we live. And we are longing for those streams to flow in our, the dried up water bed of our life. And the great thing is this. He knows God is willing to do it. And if you're His... He's willing to do it again and again and again and again. And if you're not His, then the great thing is to discover that you are parched and dead and dry and to call out to Him to pour down upon you the waters of forgiveness to break up the hard ground, to bring the tears of repentance, and then to bring a harvest of grace into your life. What a great thing it is to know that the Lord is willing to restore our fortunes. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace to us We confess to you that as every part of Scripture, this Scripture finds us where we are, but also brings us to where in our hearts as your people we really long to be. We pray you would work in us and among us, that as individuals, as families, as a church, as churches, as your people in the earth we may live as those whose fortunes have been restored 
and are so transformed that others will say, the Lord has done great things for them and will themselves seek you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.